just um, invest. It's still a great thing to do. I know it can be scary to a lot of people. Jason's been doing this a long time. He's got a lot of knowledge. We're in an age of technology, and everything's at our fingertips. You can do a lot of homework on your own, but in the end, make sure you're talking to professionals like Jason. Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. Welcome to Creating Wealth with Jason Hartman. During this program, Jason is going to tell you some really exciting things that you probably haven't thought of before and a new slant on investing. Fresh new approaches to America's best investment that will enable you to create more wealth and happiness than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made, multimillionaire who not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. He's been a successful investor for 20 years and currently owns properties in 11 states and 17 cities. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to financial freedom. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show. This is your host, Jason Hartman, and this is episode number 303. Thanks for all of the nice feedback on the show, and thank you for supporting the show and spreading the word about it. I am happy to report that I just found out last week we're number 49 on iTunes, and that's in terms of all the business podcasts out there on iTunes, not just real estate, not just personal finance, not just investing, not just economics, All of the business category, our show, The Creating Wealth Show, is number 49. So thank you so much for making it a big success. And, of course, that's a moving target. That algorithm and that ranking changes constantly. So please keep spreading the word and do the good work in helping us reform this economy and the absolute nuttiness we have going out there in the world today. But anyway, if I sound a little bit tired, it's because I am. I drove all the way from Newport Beach yesterday to Phoenix, my new home as of about a year and a half ago. I I now live in Phoenix. And I emptied the, I just kind of had to do this myself. You know, I've been putting it off for a year and a half since I moved. And I emptied the last storage unit there and a whole bunch of our record storage. And, you know, if you're a business owner, especially in a regulated business, well, all businesses regulated, but I mean a business that is licensed or a professional services type of business. I know you have empathy for what I'm about to say because most people, they just don't understand. I sold part of one of my companies to Coldwell Banker way back in 2005. By the way, everybody says I timed that perfectly. Well, that was one of my predictions that the residential real estate market would really start experiencing some difficulties in the end of 2005. And by golly, it did. I, I The sale completed November of 2005. Now, that doesn't mean for them they couldn't make a lot of money because there's there's what they call a buyer's market, a seller's market, which most people consider a seller's market to be a good market. I don't know why. You know, that's just sort of the way people look at it. And then there's what I call a broker's market. There's a buyer's market, a seller's market, and a broker's market. So, (laughs) you know, sometimes in a seller's market, the commonly considered good market, that's a very difficult market sometimes for brokers to make money because inventory is tight. 
And, you know, there's just a whole host of problems. So you can always adapt and figure out a way to make your business a lucrative business. But lest I get on a tangent, which I know I do sometimes, but what I meant to say to you, if you're in a licensed business or a professional services business, you have to keep records, right? And you'll understand if, if you're in one of these businesses and you're a listener. And I had a couple very small minority shareholders in that business when the deal closed back in 2005. And one of the things I did before I bought them back out and bought the company back myself by by paying them off, and most of them wanted to be out of the deal by then because they weren't actively involved in, in the company's new affairs. And <laughs> they, they wondered, uh, you know, and I remember one of them sort of questioned why I was withholding some money from the valuation and the stock and, and buying them out. And I said, well, because I have the burden or the company has the burden of storing all of these records for several years and yesterday, I went to the record storage company in Orange County, California, and I sorted through, listen to this, 299 bankers boxes. I already did this exercise a few years ago once, and I did it again and sorted through the remaining boxes and set a bunch of them that were within the proper time frames away for destruction and put the rest of them in a truck that I rented and then emptied another storage unit we had there and had the movers help me do that. And I, I know, look, at I had moving companies for some of this major move, which was consisted of four, well, really five storage units, the record storage company, my personal residence, one of our California office locations. And I had a lot of professional movers help me, but for this one, it just didn't make sense. So I did it myself. Anyway, suffice it to say, I was driving this rented truck home. I flew into San Jose, did an event there, did a speaking engagement there up in San Jose, then flew down to Orange County, spent the week there, had several appointments, saw some old friends, had doctor's appointment, didn't get myself a flight back because I knew I was finally going to rent a truck and come back. And I did that and I got home at about 3.30 in the morning. And, you know, I live in kind of a young college area here in Arizona. And, <laughs> you know, oddly enough, a lot of these kids were still up partying, I'm sure. But I was exhausted. So I hit the sack and then today... The helpers came, you know, there's these great websites you can use like hireahelper.com where you can just hire, you know, a couple of movers to just help you with small moving jobs. And so they helped me today and we moved this stuff out of the truck into, into the other storage unit here in Arizona. So there you go. Anyway, it's a lot of work, but that's why I'm kind of tired. If I sound tired, that is the reason. Before we get to our guest today, who's Carl Richards, who has made a, quite a name for himself. He's a Wall Street guy and he's made quite a name for himself teaching people and illustrating people, illustrating investment concepts for people on little napkin-style sketches. So I think you'll really enjoy that interview, and we'll have that here in just a moment. But two things I want to talk to you about real quickly. One is a, a listener letter, and, you know, I really appreciate the call-ins to the shows mostly. Those I like the best because those we can have a discussion. And, of course, you can always call into the show, 480-788-7823. I'll put you on the air. You'll 
you'll get your 15 minutes of fame. May only be a couple minutes, maybe 15 minutes, who knows. But this was an email, and, and that was from David. Thank you so much for sending this, David. This is an article about Michael Bloomberg questioning, basically, why does the government need taxation when they can print money? And, you know, it's a great question. And there is a famous article or book about this, and forgive me, I cannot remember the name, but it was written way back I think in the 30s, and I've mentioned it on the show before, and I don't know who the author is, but it said it had this exact same sentiment. It basically said, look, if the government is in control of the printing press, if the government can print fake fiat money, if the government can create money out of thin air, there is simply no reason for taxation. I mean, inflation, as it's sometimes referred to, is the insidious hidden tax that robs our purchasing power, that destroys the value of the money in your wallet, the money in your bank, the value of your stock portfolio, the value of your bonds, and thankfully the value of your debt, which is, hey, you see, I've perked right up because I get so excited about this. I'm no longer tired. I love this subject. And that's a big part of our investment philosophy, destroy the value of your debt and use that debt that's outsourced to tenants to buy packaged commodities, that hedge against inflation beautifully. It's a, the ultimate investing equation. But, you know, it's a great point. The government should have only one of two options. It either taxes its citizens to get its revenue, and the go- government, of course, needs some revenue. So it either taxes or it prints fake money out of thin air and destroys the value of the currency its citizens hold. It's one or the other. Our government, though, it does both. <laughs> it does both at the same time. And and that's the thing. And this article is a very good article. And it's entitled, Mayor Bloomberg, Don't Panic About the Sequester. And just says, basically, why does the government need to tax you if it can just print fake money? It's a great question. I couldn't agree more. So thank you for sending that in to me. Great point, David. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, well, two other things real quickly. One is that we are becoming a little bit disappointed again. It's certainly not the first time. In one of our local market specialists, and we may put yet, you'll see it again. We will announce it when we do it. Another area or another local market specialist on pause. We hit the pause button. Sometimes we hit the stop button and the you're fired button. Occasionally, that's rare, but it does happen sometimes. But this one, I think the pause button is coming up because they're just not delivering quickly enough and not delivering well enough. So uh, we'll let you know about that when the time comes. It's probably going to come pretty soon, but we'll kind of give them a chance to get their act together. If they don't, we'll just have to hit the pause button for a while on on one of our markets. But (laughs) it's amazing. Spending the week in Orange County in California in general last week, I'm looking Looking here at a commercial real estate deal, and this is in Costa Mesa, California, and that's an area in Orange County. And this, uh, you know, it's just interesting how amazing institutional investors will accept such crummy returns on their investment. This cap rate is a, it's a bank building. It's a Chase Bank. And think, oh gosh, a secure tenant. The banks are basically underwritten by the government. They're too big to fail. Etc. And this is a Chase Bank. The cap rate, if all of the expense projections and income projections come true, which, you know, they're likely to with a tenant like this, or at least close, but the cap rate, 4.44%. I mean, that, that just stinks. It's a lousy deal. And the appreciation rates on these types of properties, they're generally not very good. So I say to you listeners, even if 
If you purchase an investment property that we recommend, or at least the style of property we recommend, and use the plan we recommend, and even if you buy it through somebody else, of course, you'd have to have your head examined to do that, but maybe you need your head examined. <laughs> but if you do that, even if it doesn't go as well as projected, even if it only goes half as well as projected, you're going to beat the institutional investors most of the time. Just because we have the fragmentation benefit and you need to embrace the fragmentation and all those little hassles and all those little pet peeves that income property has where you feel the bumps in the road, that's one thing. And then, of course, the other issue is because it's a multidimensional asset class and it is more dimensional than a lot of these institutional investments. So keep that in mind. Keep perspective. If you don't keep perspective, I guarantee you, you are on the road to making big mistakes as an investor. Okay, enough said. Let's get to our guest. We'll be back with Carl Richards in just less than 60 seconds. Be sure to call into the Creating Wealth Show and get your real estate, investing, and economics questions answered by me personally. We'd love to have you call in, share your experiences, ask your questions, and a lot of other people listening have those very same questions. So be a participant in the show at 480-788-7823. That's 480-788-7823. Or anywhere in the world via Skype, Jason Hartman, ROI. That's Jason Hartman, ROI for return on investment. Be sure to call into the show and we are going to enter all of the callers in a drawing for some nice prizes as well. So be sure to call into the show and I look forward to talking with you soon. It's my pleasure to welcome Carl Richards to the show. He's the author of The Behavior Gap, and I think you're going to really, really love this interview because we're going to talk about some simple ways to stop doing dumb things with money. He, he, he contributes sketches to the New York Times on a regular basis, and he, he's got a, a way of illustrating complex financial concepts in fantastically simple and easy-to-comprehend ways. And he's coming to us today from Park City, Utah. Carl, welcome. How are you? Uh, I'm fantastic, Jason. Thanks for having me. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Tell us a little bit about your background, if you would. Yeah, about 15 years ago, I, I went to apply as, a, as, a, as an undeclared major at, at the University of Utah, I went to apply for a job that I thought was a security job, you know, like a bouncer or a mall <laughs> cop. And it, uh, halfway through the interview, I found out it was a securities job, not a security job. A that, slight difference, how, huh? That's how I got in the industry. I ended up getting that job and worked at Fidelity Investments for a couple of years and then went on to the, the brokerage world and became a certified financial planner. And through that sort of experience of trying to explain complex or at least issues that people feel like are really complex. I started doing everything I could to explain them visually. So I would just, you know, I have no art background, but I would just try and draw them on the whiteboard or on the yellow pad. And, and uh, from there, I, I got asked after a little while of doing that and putting them up on my own little website called The Behavior Gap, I got asked by the New York Times to start doing them for 
for them once a week. And then the book came out in February of this year with uh, Portfolio Penguin, and that's sort of where we are today. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I mean, there's obviously an old saying we've all heard, a picture says a thousand words. And it really does. It's amazing how when something is illustrated, it can become so much easier to understand than when it's just in in text form or audio form, you know, reading it or hearing it. I I wonder why that is. Our minds just work very visually, don't they? Yeah, no, I've been I've been blown away. Um, You know, and there's all sorts of statistics floating around about how many of us are visual learners, and the number's pretty high. I mean, it seems like it's 80 percent or 90 percent of us learn better visually. But very few of us, and again, I'm, I, I'd, I'd be butchering the stat to even make it up, but very few of us are comfortable communicating visually. So I think that's sort of where this disconnect is, where we're just starting. I mean, you're starting to think, see things like the, you know, the UPS commercials and all these uh, animated whiteboard sessions you see online now. So I think it is very fascinating. I found that I would be in a discussion with somebody trying to explain a concept, and as soon as I stood up and tried just made an attempt to make it visual on the whiteboard, the the discussion changed. And I don't know I, I don't know why all of that's I don't know why it works. I just know in the end I found it made it a lot easier to communicate these subjects once I started trying to make them visual. Well, can you kind of illustrate in quotes for us on this interview any of these concepts and help help people understand any 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 of the the recent things in the news or current events? I mean, we've all since the financial crisis learned so many new acronyms and and words and, and phrases and things that we never heard of before. Well, we call those Wall Street innovations. <laughs> right, right. No, I. I one of the sketches that's really popular and seems to resonate with a lot of people, in fact, it's on the cover of the book. If you just imagine sort of a, a wave, right, like a single line that goes up and then comes back down and then goes back up. And, you know, we've all seen that line. It looks a little bit like a stock market chart, right? Like the, it goes up and down. And we've all seen that line. And what I found is that we have this natural tendency. And if you go back to 97, 98, 99, or 2004, 2005, 2006, with, and 2000, part of 2007 with, with real estate, right? People get excited. And unfortunately, they get excited like after the line's already gone up. So sort of at, at the top of this line, if you wrote greed slash buy, right? People get all excited at the top of markets because they've heard about it. It's what's in the news. It's, what's, it's what their neighbors are doing. And they buy, right? And then if you fast forward a couple of years um, to, you know, 2002 or 2008 and 2009, suddenly the market's gone down and everybody's selling and everybody's nervous. And we, out of, if you wrote at the bottom of that curve, you wrote fear, sell. And then over at the far right-hand side of the piece of paper, you wrote repeat until broke. You know, this is supposed to be kind of a tongue-in-cheek you know, it's the only sort of investments are the only thing Americans buy when they're marked up and sell when they're on sale. It's kind of like the little guy always seems to enter the game too late. They do it, they, you know, after they've heard a year or two of hype about something, they're finally convinced. They're, they're convinced too late. Would that be a fair statement? And then, they, and then they're convinced to sell too late also when it, it's already in the trough, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair statement. Other than maybe we could have a, you know, we could maybe discuss what the little guy means because it's sure. fascinating to see massive institutions making the same mistake. I mean, money poured into real estate in 07, 
Money was pouring into stocks in 06, 07. Money was pouring in at the top of the market in 98, sorry, 99. So I think we all do it. Um, we just have this natural human tendency. It's, it's genetic almost that we want more of those things that are giving us either security or pleasure. And we want to get away from those things that are causing us pain as fast as possible. Very interesting. Well, so so that's kind of this the market cycle, if you will, or the investor cycle and how psychology plays on it. Any other of your sort of big major illustrations that you've done? I mean, these are just, by the way, folks, these are napkin sketches. I mean, but they're, they're brilliant little napkin sketches. You know, these aren't complicated infographics with a, a zillion little points on them. They're little, just for the listeners, they're napkin sketches, right? Is that a fair yeah, statement? Yeah. No, yeah, no, for sure. I have no, there's certainly no uh, art skill involved here. I mean, if there's a <laughs> skill, it's taking a complex thing and making it simple. But yeah, so, I mean, the other one that people talk a lot about is now, it's interesting because this may look like a Venn diagram to some people, but I, I, you know, you could argue about like there, apparently there are Venn diagram police who want, like to argue about whether something's a, Venn, a, a, a technically a Venn diagram or not. So don't worry about that. It's, I call it a circle sketch. Okay. <laughs> so in one circle, you can imagine if there was a circle and in, in it had the words written, um, things that matter. Right. And in that circle, I would put, you know, whatever, if we were talking about investing, we, you know, family, and the the amount of money you save, you know, those things that actually make it may matter or make a difference. And the other circle, and they're slightly overlapping, let's say the other circle says things that you can control. And where that overlap is, it's labeled. So things that both matter and that you have some control over, the overlap is labeled where, where, what you should be focused on. And And what I was trying to get across here was just that so often we spend so much time worried about like the national economy or even worse, the European debt crisis. That's totally out of our control. And in fact, specifically in real estate, right? So much about real estate is local. You could argue whether the national economy or the national real estate market even matters. It, you, great point. Thank you for making it because I've been saying that for a long time. I think uh, I think the listeners hearing it from somebody else will have more impact maybe. <laughs> okay, so two things. Number one, you don't control the national economy. Number two, it probably doesn't even matter to your local. So I and, and when it comes to investing, this is things like, you know, your exposure to risk. Those are things that you have control over and it matters, like how much you have in the stock market, how much you have in bonds, cash, real estate. Those things, you have control over that and they matter. We should be focused on that and not the latest news on CNBC because when we're worried about what the Financial Pornography Network is saying and what is going on in Europe, we have no control over it. It does us no good to worry about it. So I'd much rather focus on things that we can control and things that matter. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I love the Financial Pornography Network. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> but yeah, I find that that's a, a symptom of sort of the news junkie personality. And certainly I've been in that news junkie kind of mentality from time to time. And also the sort of the macro thinker mentality is that some people spend so much time agonizing and analyzing and discussing these big macro trends. Well, there are other people out there just doing deals and making money by taking action. They'll be like, sort of an excuse to become paralyzed almost. Have you seen that with your investors? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's just, you just, and it's, I mean, it's just, you get so focused on these things and they see everything feels so much out of your control and 
you just, we don't, we don't, we don't like that feeling. Right, right. Well, one of the things I've started saying in the past few years is that I used to be an optimist. Now I'm just an opportunist. I think there's enough to be pessimistic about. And I think it's, I think the pessimism is legitimate, frankly, you know, in a lot of ways. But, you know, as an investor, all I can do is control my own actions. And I just want to exploit the heck out of it. <laughs> you know, whatever's yeah. going on. Yeah. That's, that's all I can do. I can't control the Fed. I can't control government spending. I think it's ridiculous. I, I hate it. But the, the fact is, it is what it is. And all we can do as investors is, is just focus on and control our own actions and decisions. Yeah, very good point. Well, it seems like a lot of your work here here. And I'm, I'm just looking like, I went to your website on behaviorgap.com and I clicked on best selling, you know, in terms of the digital sketches and the best selling ones. And I guess, by the way, a lot, do a lot of investment firms and so forth buy these and hang them on the wall? Yeah, it's been crazy. Um, a lot of a lot of investment firms, we've got a lot of real estate firms, a lot of attorneys, CPAs, you know, they're looking for something uh art, quote unquote, if you will, to hang on the wall that's not complex and reinforces what they've been saying all along. So a client, right, walks in the lobby or the foyer or down the conference hall hallway and, and sees things that are like, huh. And they, they end up being, I like to, I mean, I, they end up being conversation starters. And, and so, yeah, they, we, it's, been, it's been actually shocking how much, we've, how much interest there's been in, in buying these Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. What what I noticed, though, is that it seems like you really focus a lot on the psychology of investing. And I know that is part of investing. But I mean, I mean, do you want to kind of ferret that out for us a little bit like the psychology of investing versus maybe the the technical side of investing, you know, the the sort of the chart, the chartist mentality, maybe, or anything like that, or some of the different philosophies of, of investing? Yeah, I know. I mean, I think the my whole point is there's plenty of information and books and knowledge and wisdom out there about how to invest like the technical piece of it you know whether you should buy index funds with your 401k or whether you should buy active funds like there's plenty of that information the dilemma of course is you could get all of that perfect and with one behavioral mistake right one emotional i got to get out of the market now mistake it doesn't matter. The investment process that you choose, speaking of like marketable securities, like maybe your 401k or your retirement account specifically, the investment process that you choose only matters to the degree that it influences behavior correctly. So let me give you an example. Let's decide, say that you've got a bunch of money in your 401k and, and you've sat down and you figured out that investing in a diversified set of index funds is the right way to go. And it's, it's, it's the right way to go. You've You've picked a diversified set that matches sort of your ability, willingness, and need to take risk over the next 20 years in your retirement account. And you've done everything right. And then you wake up one day and your, your portfolio is down 25%, which would be normal, right? I mean, if it was, it, those things happen. Your portfolio is down 25% in 08 and you wake up and say, I can't take this anymore and you sell. The skill, the knowledge, the wisdom that went into picking that doesn't matter at all if you can't behave correctly. So that's sort of, I. yes, we need to have a, a certain level of knowledge to invest correctly. But you could own, and the, the data shows this clearly, you could own an average mutual fund. And if you behaved correctly, meaning you just bought it and held on to it for a long, long time, even in the last 10 years, like all these people that say investing hasn't worked the last 12 years, that's completely wrong investors haven't worked the last 12 years. There's plenty of investments, broad-based index funds, 
that have done fine. It's just that none of us had the, the sort of emotional ability to stick with it. So buying and holding still absolutely works if you buy and hold, right? It's just that you're going to have to live through periods of time where it's incredibly painful. And you got to overcome yourself. Isn't that a big part of it, overcoming oneself? The biggest enemy is is you. Yeah, right. <laughs> it sure is. It sure is. Do you want to just talk maybe more generally for just a quick moment here about your outlook on things and what is going on with the economy and investing? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I think all of those things are really interesting to talk about, but the the dilemma of course is i have realized over the last 16 years that i don't i don't know so my view of all this while it may be fun to talk about and an interesting debate to talk about whether the economy is going to grow or not grow or a jobless this jobless rate is a permanent thing or what's going to happen in europe or what's going to happen with debt those things may all be interesting to talk about but the reality is it, since i don't know what's going to happen and i would submit to you that no one does I would rather not be making decisions on that. I would rather be making decisions on my own personal plan. So if if I've got unique opportunities in in investment real estate, private real estate deal, I should be looking at those things that are in my control. And sure, I've got to make a decision like, okay, if I buy this apartment building, what's going to happen to vacancy rates over the next 12, 30, you know, 24, 36, you know, 10 years? I'm going to have to make some assumption. And if those some if that if that range of outcomes is so potential range of outcomes is so wide that it makes me uncomfortable, then maybe I shouldn't buy that apartment building. But if I'm relatively certain about the vacancy rates, even when I build in a healthy slice of of uh, of uncertainty, right? So I make sure I'm not being overconfident. So that's sort of my view on things. Is I would rather focus. There is enough opportunity out there in any market for me just to focus on the things that I can control. And let's say I have no interest in real estate and I don't know how to do it. And I somebody who knows how, and I'm just hypothetically to say I can't find anybody. Well, then those things I can control are my long-term exposure to stocks. If I decide I can't live with any exposure to stocks, well, then I need to have all my money in CDs. That's fine too. I just need to make a little and save a little bit more. And that that's just exactly what we were talking about, about not worrying about what's going on in Europe. And you can't influence that stuff. So I, I hear you exactly. But it's so interesting to talk about. Some people like to just, just chomp on that and talk about it. Well, it's what, it's what like we've all been trained. It became sort of America's greatest spectator sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. But I, think, put it. I, I, don't, I don't think it does this any. It's much more entertaining and far cheaper to go to the movies. Uh-huh. Or, or, or even maybe to gamble in Las Vegas. <laughs> and that's expensive. <laughs> but, but yeah, good stuff. Well, hey, any closing thoughts that you'd like to give us? And please tell people, uh, give out your website and tell them where they can get the book. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the website is uh, www.behaviorgap, behaviorgap.com. And the book is available anywhere. Books are sold, airports, Barnes & Noble, everywhere. Um, but of course, you can always get it from Amazon. And you can buy it from, if you want a, a, an autographed copy, just send me an email. We can sell it to you right from my website. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Carl Richards. We appreciate it. And you, you have any plans for another book? Maybe uh, more illustrations? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're working on, we're working on something for uh, about a year from now. Uh-huh. Good. Good stuff. Well, uh, phone us up when you do so we can have you back on to talk about it. Great. Thank you very much, Jason. You know, sometimes I think of Jason Hartman as a walking encyclopedia on the subject of creating wealth. 
Well, you're probably not far off from the truth, Penny, because Jason actually has a three-book set on creating wealth that comes with 60 digital download audios. Yes, Jason has that unique ability to make you understand investing the way it should be. It's a world where anything less than 26% annual return is disappointing. I love how he actually shows us how we can be excited about these scary times and exploit the incredible opportunities this present economy has afforded us. We can pick local markets untouched by the economic downturn, exploit packaged commodities investing, and achieve exceptional returns safely and securely. I also like how he teaches you to protect the equity in your home before it disappears and how to outsource your debt obligations to the government. And the entire set of advanced strategies for wealth creation is being offered at a savings of $94. That's right. And to get your Creating Wealth Encyclopedia series, complete with over 60 hours of audio and three books, just go to jasonhartman.com forward slash store. If you want to be able to sit back and collect checks every month, just like a banker. Jason's Creating Wealth Encyclopedia series is for you. One of the great things about the Creating Wealth Show is that we love it when you call into the show, and you can do that at 480-788-7823. And let's go to a caller now and answer some questions and discuss some issues. Hey, we have CJ on the line calling from New York City. CJ, how are you? I'm doing great, Justin. I'm good. Good, good. Thanks for calling into the show. How can I help? Well, I have one question. Uh, before I ask the question, I, I love your show. Just got to point that out. Oh, me like thank you. Real cool. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad you find it valuable, and I'll keep doing it as long as people tell me they find it's valuable. So we'll keep it up. No, uh, thank you. And uh, my question, just to make it quick, is just that. Well, my concern is that what if I buy investment properties, but all of a sudden the way the government is going, they just turn around and take everything that I've worked to build, and that's my concern. Yeah, well, that's that's a valid concern. I mean, look, the reality is I wish I had some great answer, but the government can always do anything they want, or I shouldn't say they can do anything they want. They can do anything that the people allow them to get away with. <laughs> I'll put it that way, maybe. And, you know, that that's just the reality of the situation. You know, of course, we have a body of laws. We have rule of law in this country, theoretically. We have a great constitution, but more and more, we see the government watering the Constitution down and overstepping their limits and overstepping their rights, uh, in, you know, in my opinion and the opinions of many other people. So this is certainly a concern. And, um, and I have another question because I also listened to Robert. Like I've read his book, Robert Kiyosaki. And in his books, it talks about how the tax laws are an incentive that determines whatever the government wants to see get done. Right. They gear the tax laws towards that. So. I mean, when it comes to housing, in that respect, I guess, are we safe? Like, if I'm providing housing for people, you know, but you understand my question, it's like the, gov the tax laws are nothing more than an incentive right. on the behalf of the government. So, for example, like what you do, which is what I want to do, invest in properties, was that in alignment to what the government wanted to see get done? Yes, that is what the government wants to see get done. And here's the thing, you know, have you ever heard, CJ, the old saying, there's safety in numbers? Have you heard that saying? 
I've heard it, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the things I really like about being a real estate investor, being an income property investor, because there is some safety in numbers. The government is much more likely, as anybody, to to take advantage of a small, weak group than a large, powerful group. And so many people own real estate. And then of that group, that's a huge group, so many people of them own income properties. And the National Association of Realtors is a huge trade lobbying organization with over 1 million members. And so these laws and these customs are very codified into the American legal system and the American psyche. So that makes me feel very good about real estate, about income property, you know, as the quality of its investment, the quality of its tax benefits, and the quality of its legal protections. Because like I said before, if you think society is going to fall apart, everything falls apart. I mean, what will there be? Will the money in your wallet be worth anything? Will will you be able to access the money in your savings account? Will you be allowed to trade gold and silver? Probably the answer to all those questions is no. The government can ultimately do whatever they want because they, they have the monopoly on force. But barring society falling apart in these really sort of outlandish theories like that, that I guess could happen, but they're very unlikely. I feel very good with income property as an investment. Okay. And um, last question is, how do you feel about investment in other countries like Brazil? Because I hear their economy is booming in Brazil because they're trying to make it more um, urban, I guess, like the big companies are coming over. So their economy is actually booming because I thought about not only focusing on the U.S., but also doing it in Brazil. Yeah. Well, I, uh, by the way, where's your accent from? I'm from the Dominican Republic. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've been to the DR. Got to tell you a quick funny story about the DR, the Dominican Republic. I did a speech there once and it was funny. It was the only time I ever did a speech where it was translated into another language. And I, I'm, I'm wearing a microphone and an earpiece as well so I can hear audience reaction. And it's funny, every time I would say something or tell a joke, the audience would only get it like a minute later. <laughs> it was it was very <laughs> funny doing that. I'll never forget that. But yeah, so what, what I would say is that, you know, again, it goes back to that rule of law thing. I am very reluctant about investing in other countries. As you've heard me say on the show, probably, I've traveled extensively. I've been to 64 countries so far, and some of those countries I've been to many times. And Brazil is growing. They've got great resources. There's no question about it. But still, you have, I believe, a lot more corruption and a much less stable infrastructure of property management, of real estate laws, of of all sorts of things. I, and, and, and you certainly don't have the financing and mortgage infrastructure that you have in the United States. I've looked at property in Argentina extensively because I thought that was a great place to invest. I read all about it. I looked at property in Panama. I've never been to Brazil, mind you. But, you know, I've certainly read a lot about Brazil. I've talked to many developers down there in uh, Fortaleza, in Sao Paulo, and, and some of these other areas that I can't even remember right now. But you know what? For me... I, I think good old U.S. real estate is far and away, far and away the best because you don't have the opportunity to get those 30-year mortgages in other countries like you do here. It's just a, we just have a whole different system here. And, you know, our real estate prices, believe it or not, are actually relatively low. Now, you can look at a country like Brazil, you can look at China, you can look at some of these countries like the BRIC countries, and they're growing fast. But growing from where? 
they have to grow from a long way down. Yes, the U.S. and other highly developed industrialized countries, they may, they may have slower growth rates, but they don't have very far to grow. The population here comparatively is already so prosperous compared to these other countries. They're already way ahead in the U.S. Ah, uh, okay. That, that's my, my take on it. Yeah, my dad actually said the same thing. Like every other place is struggling, but the U.S. is still like the best. Because I'm getting to that age, like I'm 32, and most of my friends are having kids, and I'm realizing, wow, like I want to feel some sense of stability before I can bring a child into this world. Sure, of course and you I, do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all I'm trying to do is educate myself as much as I can. That's why I love your podcast. If there's any books, like, that would be fantastic. I'm always looking for material to read. And sometimes I hear you talk about a book, and I'm like, what's the name of the book? So if you could put a section and just books that you recommend, that would be fantastic, because I will definitely make sure that I read those books. Yeah, well, you know, we just talked about some of those books on the last show, and any of the guests that I interview, the vast majority of them are authors. So, you know, I would say that's a great start. I love the Robert Kiyosaki books. And I think just just the guests on my show, all the books that I like, I try to interview those guests. Now, I haven't interviewed every guest that I have read or, or you know, enjoyed their books, but certainly try to. And eventually, I usually get them on the show. So I'll keep talking about those, though, and try to provide as many resources as possible. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for your time. And listen, you to me, you are a light all right. on this earth. So keep doing what you're doing. Trust me. Like, I don't call as much. And... But I can't wait to go home to just listen to the podcast. You're doing great work. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, CJ. And keep on listening. And we'll keep trying to provide value for you. And I'm glad you are a lifelong learner because that'll get you very far in the world. So thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc., exclusively.